0: Welcome to Thriller Vault, where thriller writers tell their favorite stories. I'm your host, Phil Williams, and I'm here with my co-host, action-adventure author Luke Richardson. How are you doing, Luke?
1: I'm really well. Thank you, Phil. It's good to be back again.
0: Yes, great to have you back. Before we get into the story, I'd like to mention that Luke has a free box set on his website, lukerichardsonauthor.com, and I have two free eBooks on my website, philwbooks.com. If you prefer to listen, as you are right now, we also have tons of audiobooks, just search your audiobook retailer for Luke Richardson or Phil M. Williams. So I titled this story The Widower. In 2011, my wife Denise and I had dinner with a married couple, Jessica and Oliver. Jessica and Oliver were middle aged, very successful, well to do, nice people. We sat at their antique table eating a gourmet meal and we were chatting. Jessica mentioned their friend Harold, who had nearly lost his wife, Tony. While they were at their cabin, Tony was nearly crushed by a large wooden beam. She was rushed to the ER. They thought her back might be broken, but thankfully it wasn't, and she recovered. I asked, what does Harold do for a living? Hopefully he's not a contractor. Oliver smirked and said, he claims he he claims he does Christian fundraising. You don't think he does, I asked. Oliver replied. I've tried asking him specific questions about his job, but his answers sound vague. And every time we call... He always answers the phone tony tony never answers the phone tony isn't allowed to answer the phone i asked it's not like that jessica clarified harold likes to be in control does tony work i asked she's an ophthalmologist jessica replied they have a beautiful daughter jessica explained how tony had had their daughter when she was in her 40s it was her first child and she really wanted to have children time was running out of course I didn't know this at the time but tony and harold were engaged only weeks after meeting and married six months after that how did they meet denise asked chiming in online some christian dating site jessica replied harold's christian mingle profile read like this 40s six feet tall with a toned physique wavy brown hair and brown eyes it said i'm an outgoing fun caring sincere growing man of god one who is very young at heart is passionate about life, has a great sense of humor, and he communicates well. Friends would also probably add that I'm an active, adventurous, trustworthy, sensitive man who has a heart for others, especially children, and is a good listener. Even though I've never had any children, I'm a dedicated uncle to 15 nieces and nephews. I'm also usually described as being tall, dark, athletic, and attractive. This guy sounds just like me. No. <laughs> uh, notice he doesn't Notice he didn't include humble in his long list of superlatives. <laughs> In the, in the in the car on the way home, I said to Denise, "That Harold guy seems like a creep. Who the hell doesn't let their wife answer the phone?" We don't know that that's true. Denise replied, always the voice of reason. I'm not going to let you answer the phone anymore. I said. She's like, <laughs> "Good. I don't want to answer the phone." Denise replied. I said, uh, "I bet he's un- I bet he's unemployed. Probably tells his wife he's going to work, but then goes to see his mistress or maybe some massage parlor." Denise frowned at me. Now you're being mean. and I said uh, lots of guys go to massage parlors I had no evidence whatsoever to back up my massage parlor assertion Denise said that's gross a year later we had dinner with our wealthy friends again Jessica and Oliver's demeanor was subdued as Harold had suffered a terrible tragedy the day before they went hiking in the Colorado Rockies and Tony fell off a cliff she died Oliver said oh my god Denise replied I feel so terrible for Jane Jessica Jessica said Jane was Harold and Tony's daughter. I'm so sorry to hear that, I replied. Harold has had some terrible luck, Jessica said. His first wife died in a car accident. That's awful, Denise said. What kind of car accident? Like a drunk driver, I asked? No, she was trying to change the tire on their Jeep and it fell on her, crushed her, Jessica said. That's terrible, Denise said. I thought for a moment the wheels turning in my mind. I asked, was she by herself? No. Harold was with her, Jessica replied. Why didn't he change the tire? I asked. I don't know, Jessica replied. I don't know all the specifics. I blurted out. I think Harold's a murderer. (laughs) I regretted the words as soon as they came out of my mouth. I had no tact whatsoever. Uh, Their friend was grieving the loss of his wife, and I was calling him a murderer. Jessica and Oliver, you know, they're, they're, they're kind, nice people. They took my rude comment well. Uh, jessica said harold would never it, w- it was an accident oliver said it, you know, it's it's just a tragedy are the police investigating i asked i think they ruled it an accident jessica said in the car on the way home i said to denise that dude's a murderer i was expecting denise to admonish me for my rudeness but she said i know i think he is too there's no reason to crawl under a, t- a car to change a tire i said at the time I didn't know all the details about the death of Harold's first wife, Sandra Lynn. She went by Lynn. Like Tony, Lynn was a devout Christian, attracted to Harold in part because of his faith. Her tragic death happened on the night of May 6th, 1995. At the time, Harold told a sheriff's deputy that he pulled over on that Colorado roadside because his tire was low. Harold removed the lug nuts and the tire while Lynn held the flashlight. Harold went to the rear hatch of the Jeep and threw the old tire inside. When he did that, the Jeep fell off the jack and crushed Lynn, the Jeep on her back, specifically the rotor. Lynn was flown to Swedish hospital near Denver, but she had no pulse and no blood pressure. She died in surgery a few hours later. After Lynn was airlifted, Harold was given a ride by another deputy to the Swedish hospital to meet her. Harold told his story to the deputy, but added a new wrinkle. Harold mentioned that he thought Lynn had crawled under the Jeep for a lug nut Harold, being a chatty Cathy, told another deputy that the factory jack was sticking and not working well, so he used a boat jack on a cinder block. Harold had placed the boat jack under a round axle, making it very unstable. Harold thought the cinder block broke when he threw the tire in the back. At the same time, Lynn had crawled under the vehicle to grab the grab that lug nut. Somehow, Lynn was rescued from the vehicle, but Harold didn't know if he pulled Lynn from the Jeep or the people who had stopped to help pulled her from the Jeep. Incidentally. There were three jacks at the scene, but Harold had said he only used one. He then changed his story, saying he used the second one to jack up the Jeep and to get the vehicle off Lynn. The autopsy corroborated Harold's story of Lynn being crushed by the Jeep. She had no defensive wounds, suggesting she was not forced under the vehicle. While investigating the scene, a deputy noted and photographed what resembled a boot print on the front passenger fender. Despite the evidence that suggested foul play, The sheriff's office ruled lynn's death was accidental lynn and harold wanted children but lynn had several benign tumors which were supposed to be removed the upcoming summer according to her doctors after her tumors were removed lynn should have been able to have children according to harold this was the reason both harold and lynn had three hundred thousand dollar life insurance policies while denise and i speculated on harold's guilt U.S. Park Service Ranger Mark Flaherty interviewed Harold at his Denver home. Harold had declined the initial interview, citing his need to tend to his daughter, hence the home visit by Ranger Mark. Ranger Mark arrived at Harold and Tony's home on the morning of October 1, 2012. Harold led Ranger Mark into a room where he turned on a computer and showed a slideshow of pictures of Harold, Tony, and their daughter Jane. Harold wouldn't answer any questions until the slideshow was over this to me is so weird imagine being ranger mark and the spouse of your victim won't answer any questions until you watch some slideshow showing what a happy family they were i think harold was trying to play the part of the grieving spouse once the side slideshow concluded harold explained that the hike was part of a surprise 12th wedding anniversary harold said that a few months earlier he had gone to the rocky mountain national park for what he called a scouting trip to find the best place to take Tony. He originally planned to go to Bear Lake, which is a flat, easy hike with a beautiful lake that reflects the surrounding mountains. The hike was popular for these reasons. But Harold decided against Bear Lake because he thought too many people would be around. Harold wanted a private romantic setting, so he chose the Deer Mountain Trail for their anniversary hike. This hike was not as popular as Bear Lake, therefore it would be more private but it was also a much longer hike on difficult terrain. It wasn't the best hike for Tony, though, as she had bad knees from her time as a basketball star. Harold had covertly coordinated with Tony's office staff to clear her appointments on that Friday. They even put fake appointments to preserve the surprise until the last moment. Harold hid in an exam room, posing as Tony's fake appointment. Then he surprised her. I wouldn't her with trust a trip. it. This all sounds so immature to me hiding in an exam room doing all this elaborate coordination it seems so forced i mean what would what would your what would your i know my wife would be like what are you doing why why wouldn't you just tell me the night before you could surprise me i would have been fine but now I, now I, you sent me to work and now i got to go home and pack and we could have done all this last night and i would have been able to sleep in and blah 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 you know what, what would your wife do do if you did something like that ha-
1: I think she'd be the same. She'd be sort of. I like the surprise, but this is all a bit a bit over the top. But also, I'm thinking, if he was being, um, if if he was like a calculating murderer, why would he bring all these other people in as accessories, as the um, the staff and whatever? Or maybe that's the reason because he's trying to look romantic to them. Is that what you think? To add 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 yeah add validity to the story, right? and so he can say oh ask ask marie her assistant she'll know how much i loved her and how i was really trying to do this you know
0: (laughs) yeah same same reason why he probably had those photos up that's photo slideshow for the for the ranger right he's like look at how happy we were etc etc i mean it's just it's just really odd so they they packed up the jeep uh not not the same jeep that killed his first wife but a new jeep weirdly enough it, it's the same jeep cherokee model like it, it looks very similar right so it's it, that's that in of itself is creepy like if if i ha- if i bought a jeep and it crushed my wife and killed her i wouldn't buy i would buy a different vehicle i think Definitely. i don't think i would
1: i mean i'd be buying some yeah, little I mean, lightweight just, japanese car that that weighs about yeah you know, 500 pounds and couldn't kill anyone yeah. you know <laughs> Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. Unless you're this guy, and he's like, hey, that did the job, so we're going to get another one. So then they drove 90 minutes to Estes Park, which is in the Rocky Mountains. On that Friday evening, Harold and Tony checked into the Stanley Hotel, which I don't know if you know this, but that that's the hotel which inspired the setting for The Shining by Stephen King. Uh-huh. On, on Saturday, they drove to the trailhead between 1.30 and 1.45 p.m. And this also struck me as very suspicious the deer mountain trail i looked this up the deer mountain trail is a four-hour hike as somebody who's a a hiker it's not smart to start a long hike this late in the day especially you know when you're when you're um for example uh, tony had some bad knees from her time as as a basketball star so you're going to start this long hike with someone who's got bad knees late in the day Uh, it just seems suspicious to me Anyway, they hiked the first three miles through the meadow into the pine forest and up the mountain. Instead of taking the last leg up to the Deer Mountain Summit, they went off trail searching for a romantic lookout spot. At about 3.30, they found a nice rocky outcropping atop a ridge. They had lunch for about an hour. They had planned to leave at 4.45 to make it back to Estes Park for an 8 p.m. dinner reservation at a fancy steakhouse. According to Harold, Tony spotted turkey and deer with their binoculars, so they stayed on the mountain a little longer. This is another red flag to me. Why would they stay longer on the mountain if they had 8 p.m. dinner reservations? It took them two hours to make it to the ridge where they had lunch. Therefore, it would probably take you know two hours to make it back. Even if they left on time, they'd be cutting it close. So they were planning to leave the mountain at 4.45 p.m., That would put them back at the trailhead at 6 45 pm then they have to drive to the stanley hotel which is an 18 minute drive from the trailhead which gets them to their hotel at 703 pm that leaves them less than an hour to shower change and drive to the steakhouse now of course it's possible to make the 8 pm reservation but it doesn't make sense to stay on that mountain past their allotted time. Like, I'm picturing myself and Denise, and Denise would be like, hey, you know, we really need to get moving because i got to get ready. It's going to take me, you know, time to put on my makeup and get showered and all the other stuff that goes along with it. After their late lunch, they took turns taking pictures from their romantic lookout. Tony told Harold where to stand for a photo. At that time, Harold received a text from their babysitter letting them know that their daughter's team had won their soccer match. As Harold checked his phone, he saw a blur out of the corner of his eye. When he looked up from his phone, Tony was gone. Harold looked over the edge. She was lying on the rocks below. It took Harold 45 minutes to climb down the mountain to get to her. She was unconscious, but alive. Harold dragged her to a flatter area where Tony would be more comfortable, and so he and so he could give her CPR. Harold told the Rangers that Tony's head head and shoulders bounced against the rocks as he dragged her, leaving a bloody trail. Then Harold called 911. This, by the way, is a huge red flag for me. If I were trying to drag an injured person, I would pick them up under their armpits and drag them. This is just common sense. Their head and shoulders should never touch the ground at all. This is seriously sketchy to me. It seems like something a psychopath with no
1: self-awareness might say. I don't know. What do you think about that, Luke? It's the same thing when you said it. So he drags her by the ankles, like yeah, with a with a woman, head like, knocking like, against rocks and things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> oh, brutal. But he doesn't even have the like. He doesn't even have the awareness to not tell that. Like, if his if his goal is murder, he doesn't even have the awareness not to tell this to the cops. Yeah. Which whatever that, that 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 is just a, to me is a complete but, lack
1: of but also then you'd wait that so, time to phone the emergency services as well that would be the first thing right you peer over yeah, the edge and the... you see the crumpled body of your wife a 100 feet below or whatever yeah <laughs>
0: yeah right yeah now i could see like if that happened i could see maybe rushing down to try to help her but if it's going to take me a long time to get down there yeah i'm calling yeah because right? my, my initial inclination would be to, to rush to try to help. Um, but, but yeah, th- th- there's, there's more to this, of course. Harold's story was sketchy in other ways, too. The babysitter's text had been sent an hour after Tony's fall. So Ranger Mark, of course, had had the phone records, and he confronted Harold with the fact that the timeline didn't match. Harold then changed his story, saying that he must have been looking for the babysitter's text, anticipating its arrival. As Harold told Ranger Mark what had happened on Deer Mountain, the Ranger noticed Harold's lack of emotion. Ranger Mark asked Harold if Tony had any life insurance. Harold said that there was a $1.5 million policy, but their daughter Jane was the sole beneficiary. Uh, He was just the trustee. Ranger Mark showed Harold a map of of Rocky Mountain National Park. The map had come from Harold's Jeep. The Rangers had retrieved it you know, during the, the whole uh, rescue and whatnot, they had retrieved it from his Jeep. On the map, there was a pink highlighter that traced their route on the Deer Mountain Trail. And there was a big pink X, which marked the spot exactly where Tony had fallen. Ranger Mark questioned Harold about this, but Harold was speechless. Harold eventually said he didn't know why that X was on the map. Again, another big red, f- red flag for me. Now I, I started actually initially this was like such a red flag, but then I started thinking more about it. Like maybe that he could have said, well, maybe that's the X that was the she he had scouted that lookout and that and the X was the lookout and that just happened to be the same place that she fell. I don't know. But I, I, I think I think Harold probably didn't think that the Rangers were gonna search his vehicle. Anyway, the 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 medical examiner identified twenty seven injuries on Tony's body. She had bled so much that it was difficult to find a blood sample. Her injuries were consistent with someone who fell from a great height, but it was what the medical examiner didn't find that was chilling. Tony had more than a dozen broken bones, but her sternum was intact. It's very common for CPR recipients to have their sternum broken during chest compressions. And if you remember, Harold was on the phone with 911 saying that he was, you know, giving her CPR. The medical examiner wrote in his report the manner of death is undetermined. Homicide cannot be excluded. Even before Tony's tragic death, Tony's family, the Bertilays, were quite wary of Harold. Harold had stiffed Tony's brother for their rehearsal dinner, which is usually paid for by the groom. At one point, Tony had said to her mother, If Harold makes any money, I don't see any of it. Additionally, Tony's family thought Harold was controlling. Whenever they called Tony, Harold answered the phone and promised to give Tony the message, but Tony never called them back. Tony's mom had confronted Tony about this, but Tony said she never got any messages. Even when Tony was allowed on the phone, her conversations with her parents were very brief when Harold was around. This controlling behavior was corroborated by our friends, Oliver and Jessica, who had talked about Harold always answering the phone. As I mentioned at the beginning of this story, in December of 2011. Tony was injured while at their cabin with Harold. When Tony's parents heard about the incident, they were extremely concerned, expressing that they felt the accident was no accident at all and asked Tony not to go anywhere alone with Harold. Tony's brother, Todd, recalled her explanation of the incident at the cabin. He said, Tony told us that Harold called her out of the cabin and when she walked through the threshold of the door, she saw something on the deck and looked down. When she bent down and picked it up, that's when the beam hit her on the back of the neck. Had she not bent down, it would have hit her on the head. Despite Harold's alarming behavior and her family's concerns, Tony stayed committed to her husband. Todd said, She was extremely religious. I think there is a certain vulnerability with people with faith. They don't seem to have that vigilance in their eyes. They just go through life with the goodness in their heart. The Bertelays and Harold disagreed over what to do with Tony's body. The Bertelays wanted to bury her in Mississippi, but Harold decided to have her cremated as soon as possible. Harold said that that was what Tony wanted, even though there was no record of that. As an aside, Lynn's body was handled the same way, a quick cremation. The Bertelays flew to Denver for the memorial service. Tony's family suspected Harold had pushed Tony off that cliff, but they kept their suspicions quiet hoping to gather evidence as an aside i don't know if you've ever been hiking on like a mountain trail luke but i've thought this many times and i've even said this to denise i was i would say to her you know what you know how easy it would be for you to just push me off this cliff you know because it would be instant and and how and there would be no evidence that she pushed me like you could just say well they slipped
1: right i mean I don't know and people do fall off mountains all the time like it is a dangerous place to be to be hanging around like
0: (laughs) exactly right anyway they they figured Harold would be more likely to talk if they appeared to be on his side so the Bertolais were were keeping those suspicions quiet so when they when they asked him about what happened Harold told the story without any sadness like he had with Ranger Mark he did show frustration and annoyance with US Park Service because he felt that they were accusing him of killing Tony Harold said Harold said this to Tony's parents I just want to get on with my life and they're bothering me right now this guy is so freaking self-absorbed think about this for a minute Luke imagine your wife just died in a tragic accident and before the funeral you complain to her parents that the police are hassling you and you just want to get on with your life mm. I mean you they, they even had have, that you haven't even had the funeral yet and you're talking about getting on with your life I'd yeah. be I'd be devastated. I'd never get on my, my with my life. My life would be never be the same. And he's just like, yeah, I gotta I gotta go catch my get my money and, and roll on out. It's, it's just so brutal. Anyway, at dinner, Harold showed the Bertilays the slideshow he had prepared for the memorial service. The Bertilays were not impressed. Todd said, "This is her brother." Todd said, basically, the video was the Harold show. There are photos that are just of Harold. There are pictures that Tony isn't even in at her own funeral. I guess he had music in the background and he cranked up the volume so loud that the family had to tell him to turn it down. This is crazy to me. So this creep kills his wife. Then he puts solo photos of himself in her memorial slideshow. I mean, the narcissism is unbelievable. After the funeral, Harold complained about Tony's death being investigated by federal authorities and not the local police. Because it happened on on parkland harold said if it had if it had occurred 50 yards away we wouldn't be in this situation i'm assuming that maybe they were on some kind of border near some kind of border or something at the second memorial service in mississippi harold became more erratic according to the bertolays harold seemed annoyed like he had somewhere better to be he sat there with his legs crossed and his foot bouncing he gave tony's parents a graphic account of dragging their daughter's head on the rocks to get her to that flat pay, flat place for cpr same thing he told the uh, ranger mark he referred to tony as clumsy harold expressed his anger with ranger mark calling him barney fife and complained that the ranger was was obsessed with the map in his jeep ranger mark visited the ledge where tony had fallen it took the ranger 15 minutes to crawl down the mountain not 45 minutes as harold had claimed for himself there was an hour gap between the time tony fell to the time Harold called 911. Ranger Mark wondered why Harold didn't call 911 right away. It is it is my opinion that he was waiting for her to die. That's what I think happened. And I think she was still, and, and this is just absolutely heartbreaking to me to think, uh, to just put myself in Tony's foot, in, in her shoes and what she was dealing with at that time. It's just absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, Harold had told Ranger Mark that Tony's $1.5 million life insurance policy would be paid to a trust for their daughter, but this was untrue. Harold had changed the trust prior to Tony's death. It was payable to Harold. In addition, Harold had taken out two other $1.5 million policies on Tony, one in 2001 and another in 2005. So think about how many years the plan. So he's been planning this for 12 years. In total, he stood to receive $4.5 million from Tony's death. Interestingly, Lynn and Tony weren't the only women Harold had a life insurance policy on. Lynn's brother Kevin and his wife Grace and their children had remained close with Harold after Lynn's death. When Grace and Kevin split, Harold helped out with money on occasion. He even set up Grace with a life insurance policy for her in case something happened to her unbeknownst to grace the beneficiary of the four hundred thousand dollar policy wasn't her children but harold thankfully grace is still alive investigators found no business in harold's name no partners and no clients despite the fact that harold had told investigators that he did a non-profit fundraising for churches and hospitals and was financially secure so not only is this creep this narcissistic psychopath um, a murderer but he's also posing as this goody two-shoes good person that is doing nonprofit fundraising for churches and hospitals i mean you just can't you can't make this stuff up really uh, after tony's death the douglas county sheriff's department reopened lynn's case they found that harold had lied about lynn's three hundred thousand dollar policy Harold actually had two two insurance policies on Lynn totaling $600,000. The Sheriff's Department also found out that Harold had told an EMT, one of the first responders, that Lynn was changing the tire because he didn't know how to change a tire. Of course, this differed from the story Harold later told the deputies. Harold's story was consistent in regard to tossing the spare into the hatch, but at the time, the EMT noticed that the spare was next to the Jeep, not inside the rear hatch. The Douglas County Sheriff's Department recreated Lynn's death using a similar Jeep and Jack's as Harold had described. A female deputy the same size as Lynn got under the rotor confirming that it was in fact possible. They also went to the location and dropped the lug nuts in various ways, but they never rolled under the car far enough that someone would have to crawl under the Jeep to get to them. They concluded that someone would have had to throw them under the Jeep. Furthermore, they tried to recreate throwing the spare into the back but they could not get the jeep but they could not get the jack to topple even being in the pre- precarious position like Harold had set the only way to get the jeep to topple was to kick it on the fender right where the boot print was in 1995 in my opinion Harold tossed those lug nuts under the car then told Lynn that he was too big to get them and asked her to crawl under the jeep when she did he kicked that fender that's what i think happened The investigation into Tony's death was a long one, spanning over two years. For the first year, the Bertolais pretended to side with Harold, to see their granddaughter and to report back to the police anything that Harold said or did. Jessica and Oliver told me that the police weren't investigating Harold, that Tony's death had been ruled an accident. I remember being incredulous in the car with Denise, telling her that I couldn't believe that the police weren't investigating. Of course, unbeknownst to Jessica and Oliver, Harold was lying to them. And they were simply relaying what he had said. When Tony's parents finally went public with their belief that Harold was guilty, they were immediately cut off from their granddaughter. Harold and the Bertolais fought it out in family court, but Harold retained custody. Can you imagine how distressing this must have been for the Bertolais? Because Mm. I I guarantee you they were deathly afraid of what could happen to their granddaughter at the time. I mean, I just... I mean, I, 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 imagine that they, yeah, it's just, it's just an absolute, uh, it's an absolute tragedy of what the, what the Bertolais had to deal with. I just, I can't even imagine. Meanwhile, Harold's daughter, Jane was assigned a lawyer by the court to look out for her interests. Barbara, Barbara Cashman was the lawyer and she met with Jane and she was concerned. Barbara had asked Jane if she had any pets. Jane replied that she was allergic to pets. Not that she was allergic to dogs or cats, just allergic to pets in general. Barbara thought she had been lied to by Harold. Jane said her mother was clumsy, just as Harold did. She said that her mother wasn't smart about certain things. Barbara thought Harold was trying to erase Jane's love for her mother. Jane struggled to get along with other kids in school. According to Barbara, Harold had trained Jane to be emotionally dependent on him. He did her homework for her, cut her food for her, and minimized her contact with the outside world. Harold was finally arrested in November of 2014 after over two years of investigation. He was charged with one count of murder in the first degree with a maximum penalty of life in prison. Upon arraignment, the judge denied bail, in part because of Harold's access to $1.5 million in cash and in part given the grand jury's indictment. During the trial, it was, it was revealed that in June of 2012, Tony opened a bank account, her first individual account since she'd married Harold. She transferred money into the account, which Harold was well aware of. After that, he made nine trips to the Rocky Mountain National Park alone before the anniversary trip with Tony in October 2012. Tony might have been planning her escape, and Harold knew it. There wasn't any physical evidence. There was no sign of a struggle between Harold and Tony. In the end, the jury judged Harold by what they did have. Harold lied about nearly everything, lies such as the insurance policies and Jane being the beneficiary, lies about the timeline of Tony's death, how long it took to descend the mountain, his constantly shifting stories, Tony's near-death experience of a beam nearly killing her at, the, at their cabin, the map with an X to mark Tony's death spot was considered. Also, and I think this is a, a very, this is probably the biggest piece of evidence, Lynn's death was also admitted as evidence, so jurors got to see the ghastly parallels, with likely Harold's footprint on that fender. In the end, the jury thought Harold was a liar and a murderer. I agree. The jury convicted Harold of first-degree murder. The judge sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He is currently in federal prison. In late 2015, The Douglas County Sheriff's Department announced that they were suspending the investigation into Lynn's death. Harold may not have had to face charges in regard to his first wife's murder, but Lynn's murder was a key piece of evidence that convicted Harold for Tony's murder. Just before Christmas of 2015, Tony's brother Barry was named Jane's guardian. Jane moved to Mississippi to live with Barry, his wife and daughter. Jane has shown an interest in science and medicine just like her mother. When I think about this terrible tragedy, I think back to what Tony's brother, Todd, said about his late sister. He said, she was extremely religious. I think there's a certain vulnerability with people with faith. They don't seem to have that vigilance in their eyes. They just go through life with the goodness in their heart. Christianity teaches that we can all be saved. But what about the sociopaths who live among us, people who have no consciences? According to psychologists, these people can't be treated. For a sociopathic predator, who better to target than the kindest people among us? So do you think this story was true, false, or somewhere in between?
1: Oh, so interesting. Writer, you've, you've changed some details of that, but I've, but I've heard of things like that in the past, and it sounds very, very reasonable, very true to me
0: this is pretty much everything is true. Now, some of the conversations that, that Denise and I had with our friends, I mean, they're recreated. So, and I changed, and I changed a few names around, but other than that, it's, it, the whole thing is true. Uh, in addition to the information from my friends who knew Harold and Tony, uh, I also used Michael Fleeman's book, the black widower, which is right over here. Uh, it's a very good book. And I also used a bunch of news articles so you can, you know, you can look it up and find, but, uh, so, it's it's pretty much true
1: to the best of my ability as it's one of those stories that i think is 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 so heartbreaking and gritty and almost painful to listen to that that true crime stories are aren't they because you imagine it and you know it and my intention if i was to write a story would be to make that a bit more a bit nicer do you know what you know what i mean you'd make it a bit more There there would be some comeuppance i know there was but there would be the, the poor ladies that you know that, that that died as part of that. You'd have some comeuppance for them or something, wouldn't you, if you were to write that?
0: And the child that that doesn't have parents. I mean, mm. the, the one parent being in prison is good, but I mean, she lost her her mother, and yeah. I mean, thankfully, she has the 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 you know her mother's family, which apparently seem to be wonderful people that are taking care of her and doing all these these great things. And I, I can only imagine how much they've they've had to go through and how much how much Jane has had to go through and I've changed her name cause I don't want to use her name specifically. But, mm. um, but yeah, it's just, it's absolutely heartbreaking. One of the things that I thought about cause I've done a lot of research in, in cause I've written a lot about sociopaths and one of the things that the, that I was reading in the sociopath next door by Dr. Martha Stout, which is a great book. I don't know if you've read that before. I've heard but, it. I've heard of it. I but, haven't read um, it. Yeah. It's a really good book. Uh, it's one of my favorite, I would say it's in my top 10 favorite books, but, uh, In the book, she talks about sociopaths being— Now, a sociopath isn't typically a murderer, but all the murderers are sociopaths, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. So a sociopath is basically just someone without a conscience. And most people without a conscience are just—they're just kind of— they're just bad people, you know. They'll they'll lie. They'll do all sorts of things. Most of them aren't, you know, collecting heads in their basement or, or doing, you know, crazy psychopath killer things, right? They're just they're just the terrible people among us. And according to Martha Stout, she seems to think, and I've seen this number, I've seen varied numbers from different psychologists, but she seems to think that four percent of the popul- population are sociopathic, meaning roughly one in twenty five people which is staggering to me, which means that you and I both know people and you and I both have people in our lives right mm-hmm. now, uh, this moment that are sociopathic. And what she said was that they're all very different. Like there, there isn't really some, there, she said there's really only one thing where she can say, this kind of binds them together. And what she said was that they all love to play the victim. And I was like, oh my God, that's, that's so true. So if you know people that really love to pay the victim, I would be very careful. But if you think about this case with Harold, I mean what 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 bigger victim is somebody who's a widow or a widower, right? I mean, that's the ultimate. they're the ultimate victim. You know, they've lost their spouse. Everybody, you know, feel sorry for me, even though I've just collected, you know, a million dollar policy or whatever he's got. And um meanwhile he gets to play he gets to play the victim, collect all the cash. Uh Prey on these these very kind Christian women who, you know, are are, are really looking at the best in people. And I know, and I know people like this. I really do, and they're just absolutely wonderful people that you want to have in your life. Mm-hmm. But I think that the, the flip side is that they're vulnerable to predators, and that's the
1: scary thing. I don't know. What do you think about that? Mm, I, I think you're. I think there's a truth in there. I don't want people to come away from listening to this and think, oh, I shouldn't be nice because it makes me vulnerable to predators. Right. But I think you need to be right. aware, don't you, of. Um, and I think the thing that the key point that you're talking about here is is the isolation tactics. That's the red flag, isn't it? Because yeah. if you're yeah, married to is. someone or you've got a close friend or whatever and they're a beautiful, lovely person, you'd want them to be a beautiful lovely person to all of their friends and all of their family and everyone they know that you'd want their light to involve to to brighten the lives of lots of people you wouldn't want to keep that for yourself would you it's it's that thing that's the red flag to me is the uh, you know is the is is that sort of behaviour and you talked about that with with his daughter as well keeping her away from the from from others and these sorts of things and controlling everything down to as you say that the sheriff had to come in and sit in this chair and watch this and do that and do that it was all very much sort of a a show that this guy would put on that sort of that sort of controlling behavior absolutely yeah the
0: isolation and the control that's that's you're right huge red flags so That's going to be it for today. Uh, Thank you so much for listening and watching Thriller Vault. Be sure to like and subscribe. I hope you all come back next week for another thriller story.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, thanks so much. We'll see you next time.